Hello, friend. Thanks so much for downloading this podcast. And with all my heart, I hope you hear something that edifies, encourages, equip, enlightens, and then engages you in the marketplace of ideas. But before you go and before you listen, I want to take a quick moment and explain to you this month's truth tool. The book is called I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith. You know, it's paramount as followers of Christ that we not only know what we believe, but why we believe it. So questions like heaven and hell, angels, the Trinity, all of these are foundational issues for believing Christians. But sometimes we don't fully understand what it is we believe about Christianity. So the book, I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith is just that. It's concise and it's a wonderful guide to explain to you the cornerstones of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. It's yours for a gift of any amount because In the Market with Janet Partial is a listener-supported broadcast. We stay on the air because you pray and give. So if you'd like this month's Truth Rule, just call 877-JANET-58. Ask for a copy of I Believe. That's 877-JANET-58. Or you can go online to InTheMarketWithJanetPartial.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. Give a gift of any amount. We'll send it to you as our way of saying thank you. While you're on that website, you might want to take a moment, scroll down just a little bit farther, and there's a description of what it means to be a partial partner. These are people who give at a level of their own choosing, and they give every month. They get the truth tool if they ask for it every single month, and they'll also get a newsletter, only people that do, that includes an audio portion that only goes to my partial partners. So if you want to be a partial partner or you're just interested in giving one time to get a copy of I Believe, 877-JANET-58 is the route to go, 877-JANET-58, or online at InTheMarketWithJanetPartial.org. I Believe, a great book for you to put in your backpack as you continue your Pilgrim's Progress. Now, please enjoy the podcast. Here are some of the news headlines we're watching. By the time the conference was over, the president won a pledge. So Americans worshiping government over God. An extremely next... rare safety move by a nation. 17 years, the Palestinians and Israelis negotiated. Friends, welcome to In the Market with Janet Partial Fair Warning. What we're going to talk about this hour is all taboo. <laughs> yeah, I want you to think about that. Taboo, how would you define that? Well, in the church, we would say that those are topics that Christians don't want to talk about. But here's the paradox, and maybe therein lies also the answer. If we don't want to talk about them as Christians, but God's Word addresses that very topic, that not only should it be talked about, it should be preached, it should be repeated, we should be unashamed in the answer, and always through a grace narrative, while the t- subjects might be taboo and touchy because they come from a place of hurt or shame or brokenness, they should be talked about. So I love the fact that Mike Novotny decided, you know what, I'm going to put it all together in a book, and I'm going to do it because I'm paying attention to the people in my own church. Mike, by the way, who has been a guest on this program before, and I'm so thrilled he's back again, is an author, a pastor, and a speaker who has a Master's of Divinity from Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary and a Doctor of Ministry from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He's the lead speaker for Time of Grace, which is a global media ministry that's committed to ensuring that God's grace, his love, glory, and power is accessible around the globe. An independent donor-funded ministry, Time of Grace, works to remind people of the satisfaction and fulfillment found in Jesus as it works to share its message through television, print, social media, podcasts, and other practical resources, including Mike's book as well. So, Mike, it's an absolute joy to have you back. 
And I want to ask several quite why questions before we get into the content of the book. And this is one of those books, by the way, friends, that's a resource. We're not going to cover every topic in the book, obviously. But let me tell you that when a question comes up, a topic comes up, and you want to know how to respond biblically, this book is a part of your legacy library, is a part of your resource library as well. So, Mike, again, being an astute pastor who listens, good pastors not only talk and preach, but they listen. What, how did this subject matter for this book come about? Yeah, thanks for having me back, Janet. Yeah, a, a book on anxiety, depression, suicide, race, politics, pornography, adultery, abortion, abuse, suicide, alcohol, transgenderism, sexual intimacy, and a few other things. H- how did that happen? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> my, um, you know, my, my short answer, there was definitely a need that I saw in our community and local church, but actually the need started with me personally. Um, So growing up in the church, I was a kid who was blessed to uh, be in a Bible-teaching church with lots of gospel, lots of faithfulness, lots of Jesus. Um, God had blessed me with a a mom who raised me to go every Sunday. I got hooked on reading the Word of God every single day when I was in high school. But at the same time, I was dealing with something kind of taboo and kind of embarrassing and really shameful, which was an addiction to pornography. And what I learned from my story was that um, church was great and the Bible helped, but nothing really seemed to change on a practical level for me until you know, the Holy Spirit gave me that two-handed shove and just gave me the courage to talk about this with someone else. And that was such a, a game changer for my faith, just a reminder of my forgiveness in Jesus, which I was starting to doubt in the midst of my struggle, and new resources, accountability, and courage. So was it easy? No. Was I sweating like mad <laughs> when mm-hmm. I reached out, for sure. But what I what I learned from that experience and what I've seen time and time again ministering to God's people is that not talking is not helping. And as tough as it is, maybe the best thing that lots of us could do is to grab a Bible and start talking taboo. Yeah. Again, I just applaud you for doing this in this book, because if God's spoken to it, then A, we should not be ashamed at all, and B, it means that we're not listening to people like you in your struggle, because we all have struggles, who are afraid to identify the taboo in their own life because somehow they're beyond the pale of Calvary and the grace that he's afforded us. So I'm so glad that you decided that you would just take these topics and address them. And I love the way you laid out the book. Let me just tell my friends, the part, the first part deals with anxiety, depression, and suicide. The second part deals with sexual intimacy, homosexuality, and transgenderism. The third part deals with marriage, adultery, and divorce. And there's subtopics under every one of these headings. The next part is race and politics. The next is alcohol and pornography. The last is abuse and abortion. So I love the way you laid it out, but it really raises an interesting question, Mike, which is, You started out with mental health, anxiety, depression, and suicide. I'm thrilled that you did, because if there were ever a taboo subject in the church, it's this. We have a marked stigma on these issues in the church. I don't know where it comes from. I'm going to give this now for the, and I'm hearing a collective groan through my listeners all across the country, but I think it's a succinct example. This is one of my hot button issues, and maybe it's just because my mother worked in the mental health field and we grew up having our chicken and peas at dinner at night and hearing the stories and Christ was in the midst of all of those conversations. But you'd have a midweek prayer service and somebody would say, pray for my sister. She's just been diagnosed with stage two breast cancer and everybody prays. But we're loath to go to that same prayer meeting and say, pray for my sister. She's just been diagnosed as bipolar one. Why? Why? Where is the stigma? What does the church need to do to eradicate that? Because... A church is a place for sin-sick souls, and we bring our brokenness into the church, but 
we still decide that some topics are taboo to go to the title of your book. Where does that come from? Yeah, it's kind of weird. It's almost like a self-perpetuating culture. Um, I sometimes think of the first century when the Apostle Paul is writing letters to churches, and it seemed like talking about sex or prostitution or something that might seem really scary to us was like normal conversation. And so that makes me think about our culture. Like, yeah, where does this start? Is it a lack of familiarity and something becomes hushed-hushed and silent? Um, Is it our parents didn't talk about it or we've never heard a pastor say it? So we kind of by osmosis learn, oh, I, I can't talk about this either. So, yeah, it's kind of tough to put your finger on why, why is it A and not B, mm-hmm. and why is it C and D and not E and F? But hearing the story of how you grew up, that, that's so inspiring to me because it reminds me it takes just one good parent or uh, one faithful friend or one courageous small group leader to say, hey, we're, we're going to pray about this today. And it starts to shift that culture in a really healthy place where, hey, if you're struggling with this, you're in the right spot. We're the people of Jesus. We love you. This is going to be messy. That's nothing new. But wow, if if you're going to bear this burden, let us bear it with you, because this is what the church is called to do. And that's why I think, Mike, your ministry is so beautifully named A Time of Grace, because it really is about your exemplifying grace in your teaching and in your writing and all the work that you do. Mike Novotny is with us. His brand new book is called Taboo, Topics Christians Should Be Talking About But Don't. When we come back, let's talk taboo. Let's talk about the subject of suicide, because there's some really bizarre teachings about this in the church. The definitive answer is in the Word of God. What do we know? What does the Word reveal? More with Mike right after this. Who is God? Why am I here? How should I live? Could you find the answer to those crucial questions from God's Word? That's why I've chosen I Believe as this month's truth tool. Learn the essentials of our faith in a clear and succinct way. Ask for your copy of I Believe when you give a gift of any amount to In the Market. Call 877-JANET-58, that's 877-JANET-58, or go to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Mike Novotny is with us. He is a pastor, an author, a speaker, and we're talking about him with his newest book called Taboo, Topics Christians Should Be Talking About But Don't. So I'm going to dive right into this topic of suicide, and I want to start first with what the Bible says about this and what it doesn't say and why somewhere along the line we said that this was somehow an unforgivable sin. I have a feeling that's dogma, not doctrine, and we need some clarification on this, Mike, because let's just take a look at the lay of the land. The parallel pandemic to COVID is the mental health crisis in this country and even in the best of Christian homes. There are people who have committed suicide or have attempted suicide, and a lot of people don't go back to the church with that pain. They just keep it to themselves and self-isolate. So talk to me about this. Yeah. Suicide is such a tricky issue because, obviously, you've been blessed to speak to a very broad audience. And I would say there's some people listening right now who need to hear truth number or truth A, which is vitally important, and other people shouldn't listen to truth A. They should listen to truth B. So... Do you think we could just have one-on-one conversations with all of your listeners? Is that allowed? Yes, yes please. <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk to the producer about that? <laughs> yeah, here's, here's the tricky part, and, and I honestly have a pastoral fear. So truth A, which is so important, is that if you had a Christian loved one who took their own life, and they were a follower of Jesus, but they were just in a, a dark spot, and they and they made a choice, a sinful choice that they can't take back, 
despite the pain and despite the sinfulness of their choice to end their own life, they are still with Jesus. Um, Suicide is not, in a single passage of Scripture, labeled as an unforgivable sin. That idea that people didn't have time to repent, that's really bad theology. Um, You and I might be sinning in our last breath, but that doesn't disqualify us from heaven. So I I would want to comfort a lot of people that there are Christians in our lives who have taken their own life, and yet they still have eternal life by the name of Jesus. But I also know that's a dangerous teaching, because if there's someone listening right now who's just stuck in pain and they want the pain to end, they might jump onto truth A and say, oh, I can be with Jesus. And they might actually use the comfort of the gospel to create um, a reason to make a decision that they can't take back and that's going to hurt in a very immense way. So I would go to, to truth number B, or truth letter B, and just encourage people, if you're in that spot, don't. God put it in his top ten, you shall not murder, including murdering yourself. That I know you think it might be the answer to escape your pain, but trust me, I've, I've ministered to people and families who have been left behind, and the pain is, is catastrophically more. And so I would want you to hear that your life isn't over. God is the one who will decide when it's over. He has plans for you to give you hope and a future. He sees you, knows you, loves you, we need you. <laughs> and I wish I could speak to each person just face-to-face to know if, if they need truth A, to comfort them after loss, or truth B, to keep them going so there isn't a great loss today or tomorrow. Yeah, I so appreciate your sensitivity to that, Mike. You know, when you talk about the pain, someone once said that suicide isn't killing yourself, it's murdering the whole world. So there really is that impactful residual after that decision. It's also a cry for help. And that's the part that sometimes gets missed is that for that person who said, I really didn't mean to do it. I just wanted to get your attention because you're not hearing me in my silent scream. I'm trying to let you know where I'm at. So um, and as you said, and you're being very careful about these two different distinctives here, the dogma aspect that I referred to earlier is a few hundred years old that apparently was tied to a homily hundreds of years ago that somehow, and again, being sensitive that this is not to encourage, this is a theological point of truth, that if you die um, as a result of this, it doesn't mean it eradicates your salvation if you've known the Lord as your personal Savior. And I think that's important. That That may be one of the reasons why people don't talk about it in the church is they think that somehow that last act, and it is a sinful act, somehow eradicates the work that Christ has done in your life before that point. And that's not what Scripture teaches, correct? Correct, yeah. I was actually taught that my freshman year at Bible college, that no one would commit suicide if they had true faith in Jesus. Hmm. And it it seemed a little bit off, and now especially as I've ministered to so many people, as I've seen the dark places that we can go on our worst days of our mental health, I've just come to the conclusion that that's simply not true. Maybe in some cases, but not in all cases. So I I really appreciate your courage and your clarity in just saying that out loud. Well, and if you read some of the Old Testament in particular, there are people who are at the point of exasperation. It's the end. You know, how long and why is my soul crying out? I mean, if you look at these, these are real heart cries. And yet they're lamenting before the Lord who does answer and give them a response through his grace and his mercy and his love. So I thank you, Mike, for tackling it. So, hey, you had nothing to say on the sexual intimacy, homosexuality, and transgender part because, you know, we've all got that down pat. Um, (laughs) I want to start first, not with what Mike or Janet have to say, but what the Word of God has to say. You know, we keep forgetting, and now it's an outdated modality because I don't think people reference it the way they used to, but I used to say MTV didn't define sex. God did. 
And when we realize that sex was placed in a place of perfection, if we're using our spiritual thinking caps and we're growing up in him and we're getting off that diet of milk and moving to meat, it makes perfect sense that Satan would take perfection and turn it into perversion. That's been his game plan all along. So why did God create sex? Oh, yes. Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> now I'm getting nervous, Janet. I, I, I see this is the book. It, it, like We should be able to put like Janet as a promo code and you get a free bar of deodorant before you read it, just so you're, you're fully prepared. <laughs> yes, why did, why did God create sex? Um, sex, when it's done right, between two people who have committed themselves, their today, their tomorrow, and their future on earth together, um, when it's done with patience and tenderness, when we love each other well before we make love to each other, sex is meant to be a little glimpse of something better, namely the pleasure and connection of being in the very presence of God. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, there's just ways that God has wired our body ke- chemically with the, the great pleasure that sex can be when it's done right. Um, and to know that, that what a person feels in that moment, how close you might feel to your spouse— that that's um, like so many things. The whole earth is full of God's glory. Um, the Song of Songs, I love how just like, you know, people have wrestled with the interpretation. Is this talking about physical intimacy or is this some sort of transcendental, spiritual, eternal connection with Jesus? And, and there's a great overlap between those two things. Yeah. So I, I just love that thought. I feel so close to my wife after things are done right. Yeah. And I think, wow, this is just a glimpse of a better joy that's coming in heaven. That's exactly right. By the way, Don't let Mike's modesty fool you. He has three chapters in his newest book, Taboo, entitled Sex is Good, Sex is Work, Sex is Fiery. This from a pastor. Let the record reflect. (laughs) We've got so much more to talk about with Mike Novotny and his brand new book, Taboo. We're going to continue right after this. Always good to spend time with Mike Novotny. He is a pastor, a speaker, and author. He is the lead speaker for Time of Grace, which is a wonderful ministry that is committed to ensuring that God's grace is accessible to people around the world. Mike writes some wonderful books, by the way, and his latest is called Taboo, Topics Christians Should Be Talking About But Don't. So I have my two cents, just how I observe life from where I'm situated I would have never thought as a kid who grew up in the church that the tip of the spear against the church would be the issue of sexuality, which is inexorably tied to the issue of identity. And there is where my wake-up call took place. I didn't get sidebarred by the story of sexuality, but rather your identity. Same-sex attraction means there's an alienation of affections from God's perspective, where you want to be needed and valued. The transgender is an act of of pain coming from a place that says, I'm in the wrong body. It's also an act of rebellion. It's absolutely having a Nimrod moment where you raise your fist toward heaven and say, you made a mistake, God, I should be this and not that. So I want to go back again to the word of God. You did an excellent thing with the letters LGBT. So talk to me about in your world, Mike, what LGBT stands for. Yeah, so we had a, a month-long sermon series. So for four straight Sundays at our church, we tackled um, a series called Gay and God. And as part of that research, you know, I was digging into the scriptures, especially Genesis 19 and Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1. I actually reached out to people in our community who are LGBT, including some gay clergy and other gay-affirming churches. 
And I had just some face-to-face, uh, I hope, humble and gentle conversations about how do you read the Bible and, and what do you find? And I got to hear people's stories, and as I was preparing for those messages, I, I kind of ended up, what I think is my modern approach to this really touchy issue, you said it, LGBT, which stands for Love, Gospel, Bible, and Trust. Mm. And But, but that means I'm, I'm going to start with love. Um, I'm not holding back my Christian love to see if a person is straight or not. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm I'm starting with open arms. Uh, my, my God loved the whole world so much he gave his one and only son. So that's where I'm going to begin. Um, I'm not going to check people at the door to see if they're straight or gay. Like, please, come in. Hospitality, kindness, gentleness, affection, lots and lots and lots of love. Then the gospel. Jesus told a great story in Matthew 13 that a person is only going to give up what they currently have with joy if they find a greater treasure. And so if I'm asking a person, let's say, to repent of their homosexuality, to give up their gay marriage, and to uh, turn to Jesus, Jesus better be worth it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I want to preach this big gospel of a God who offers eternal happiness and satisfaction in his presence, forgiveness now and forever, love now and forever, friendship with God himself now and forever. So if I just jump to the passages to say, you know, th- this is wrong. God doesn't approve of this lifestyle you know, a person might say, why would I give up my family, my connection, sexual intimacy with another person? For what? So that's why I say, start with love, then make sure there's a clear proclamation of the bigness and beauty of the gospel. And then the B, that's when we get to the Bible passages, which I wish we had time to unpack all of them, but I I believe come to this historic conclusion that homosexuality is not God's design. Um, Especially, I think Romans 1 makes a clear case for both men and women, uh, be gay or lesbian, does not Mm -hmm. line up with his designed for our bodies or his will. And then finally, the T, and uh, this is especially for all the people out there who struggle with people-pleasing, the T is trust. Trust that if you've loved a person well, if you've shared the gospel with them, and you've spoken the truth of what the Bible says, that you have done the best possible thing that a Christian can do. That They might thank you, they might hate you. Mm-hmm. They might repent of their sin, they might continue in it. Um, they might want to have another conversation, or they might slam the door and call you something phobic. But if you have been faithful with love and the gospel and the Bible, you can trust that you are on the right path. It's the exact same path that Jesus took during his 33 years on earth. So LGBT, love, gospel, Bible, trust. What kind of a response did you get from your congregation when you preached four Sundays in a row on this? Um, they kicked me out. That was uh, my last sermon. <laughs> <that I> ever... <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> so buy my book. I need, I need the proceeds. <laughs> no, uh, Janet, you know what has been so cool with all the topics in this book? And I, I was blessed to kind of walk into a, a great culture um, that I didn't create. But people were just grateful. Um, they know that we're all dealing with this. Uh, lots of us deal with same-sex attraction or depression or have a suicide or battle with sexual intimacy in our marriages. So they were they were just grateful that someone would stand up and grab a Bible and hopefully speak with gentleness and respect and tell them the truth of what God said. Mm -hmm. So I've just been amazed at how well people have responded to it. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. It's interesting because uh, we actually, interestingly, our pastor is currently going through the book of Romans. And when he got to Romans 1 and we started verse 24, people, some people, not a lot, some people did walk out of the service. And so that takes me to a bigger question, which is why we shouldn't avoid topics that have been culturally categorized or personally categorized, for that matter, as taboo. Because if the word speaks to them always through the narrative of grace and having a heart like his means having compassion, by the way, 
if you really want to be changed, ask the Lord to give you a compassionate heart. It's uh, amazing the sort of um, radical reorganization of you as a person that will take place. But the trust part, I think, is extremely important. What you're saying statedly and impliedly is that you have to leave the outcome to the Lord. So if someone who struggles in this particular area has decided that you should go directly to hell and not pass go because of what you said, we just have to leave the results of that to the Holy Spirit, correct? And you hear the music, and I I do want to go to this because this can really be an overlayment for so many of the topics in your book of Taboo, which is when we speak about these things and we gracefully represent what the Word says, it doesn't mean we're always going to have a receptive audience. Scripture is replete with people who were preaching the purity of the gospel, and there were people who wanted to lunge at them wanted to kill them, wanted to murder them. But there were also people who said, what you're saying has caught my attention, tickles my ears. I'd like to hear some more. So talk to me about how we find that right affect in delivering the truth of God's word on taboo subjects. Mike Novotny is with us. The book is called Taboo Topics Christians Should Be Talking About But Don't. Back after this. do you tune into In the Market once, twice a week, every day? If this program is valuable to you, why not become a partial partner? Your financial support is invaluable as we apply God's word to current events and modern culture. Knowing we can count on your monthly gift encourages us to deliver relevant and up-to-date content every day. Become a partial partner today by calling 877-JANET58 or go online to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. We're visiting with Mike Novotny. So good to have him back on the program again. He's a pastor. He's a speaker. He's an author. He is the lead speaker for Time of Grace, a global ministry that really wants to make sure that people around the globe understand God's grace and his mercy. And by the way, Time of Grace loves to work with all forms of outlets to be able to express the good news, television, print, social media, podcasts, and his books as well. So his latest is called Taboo, Topics Christian Should Be Talking About But Don't. And we had just, and there are multiple sections of this book, as I noted at the start of our conversation. So I'm just going to ask one last thing. And while it's contextualized in a conversation about sexual intimacy, homosexuality, and transgenderism, it really could apply to any one of these topics because they all categorically can fall into the nature of being taboo. And that is the idea of proclaiming truth in love, not a multiple choice test, not an either or, it's a both and an equal measure. Is it easy? Absolutely not. But that's our directive. We're supposed to do it. And because of the enabling of the power of the Holy Spirit, it can be done. So my question then, Mike, is if you, if any of us are deciding to talk about these subjects from a biblical perspective, and the pushback is one of marked non-receptivity, do we go back home and we say, well, we failed dismally on that one, or is victory defined in being faithful and proclaiming in love God's truth wherever and whenever we can? Yes. Um, yeah, I, I think as we look at the example of the apostles and of Jesus and the prophets, pick a testament, pick a book. <laughs> Fa- faithfulness was never judged on someone's response to the message that we preached. Mm-hmm. I, I would say, though, but b- before we run and just assume we're faithful, I, I don't know about you, but there's definitely one way that I lean when it comes to being full of grace and truth. And I think every Christian kind of has a natural inclination. Uh, for example, because I've, I've been such a Bible guy, I'm definitely more chapter and verse than empathy and compassion. That's just mm-hmm. my natural wiring. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very easy for me to use my biblical knowledge to rattle off 
okay, homosexuality, 1 Timothy 1, 1 Corinthians 6, Romans chapter 1, um, Genesis chapter 2. And it's so easy for me to default to kind of lots of truth, but very little gentleness and respect. And then I think there are other people who are the opposite, where they're very respectful, they're very patient, they love to listen to people's stories, they, they hurt when people are hurting, but they, they don't have a spine and a backbone to say, okay, and, and the Word of God is what's true. And here's what the Word of God says about such things. So, you know, maybe instead of assuming that we're the martyrs like Jesus and the apostles, when we feel pushback, we should really pray, um, ask for advice, follow up with people, and, and make sure we are acting in truth and love. Um, there is certainly a blessing that Jesus said when we're persecuted because of the kingdom of God and because of righteousness. <laughs> but I think it's, it's really tempting for me as a sinner to jump to that and assume that I'm, I'm the victim of an anti-Christian culture when maybe I'm just a jerk. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm just smashing people with Bibles and just thinking, well, I'm being truthful and I'm like Jesus. But, you know, Jesus was full of grace and truth. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't mean to accuse anyone unnecessarily, but I've seen that in my own life. And maybe my story can help save other Christians from doing the same. Yeah. Thank you for that, Mike. Should Christians live together before marriage? Oh, yeah. I, big question. So at a, a pastoral staff gathering, I asked all of our pastors, do you think living together before marriage is categorically, biblically condemned, no matter the situation? Like, it's time for church discipline, excommunication, calls to repentance. Or do you think it's just very, very dangerous and unwise? And I'm sitting around the table with five very devout Bible guys. Um, These are not guys who get wishy-washy on theology and doctrine. And i got to tell you, Janet, that was a really robust and interesting conversation. Could we think of a passage that said from the start, any living together before marriage is categorically bad? What I did notice, though, (laughs) as I've ministered to people, is, wow, it is really hard to live a sanctified, holy life when you put yourself in that situation. Um, if you're in love with another person, physically attracted to another person, the, the Bible is very, very serious about sexual purity. Um, we should flee from it, First Corinthians says. And when people put themselves in situations like that, not only might they be an example that leads others into temptation, but I, I have to imagine, if we're being totally candid, that someone is going to struggle deeply, if not fall continuously, into sexual sins. So I think my final pastoral conclusion, having studied the Scriptures, is I think living together before marriage is a lot like drinking tequila shots. (laughs) I I don't know that I can find a passage that says it's absolutely wrong, but it's almost always connected with something that is wrong. And so I'd be deeply concerned if if my daughter, my friend, a member of my church moved in with someone before they'd taken that sacred vow of marriage. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so again, just to flesh this out a little bit. So if God defines marriage, and he does as a man and a woman— If God institutes sex, and he does, between a man and a woman in an institution he defined called marriage, then this is almost a syllogism. Therefore, the only time sexual expression takes place is in a man and a woman's relationship that is a marriage, a promise made before God in the presence of witnesses. So if you're living together, if the Bible says that you're supposed to flee temptation, how do you live together and then say, uh, we're not going to get involved? I mean, it's like... You know, one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. I I can't do that on my own. I can only do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. But why would I test him like that to say, we can have this kind of arrangement, and no matter what, I'm not going to fail. It's just, uh, the Bible talks about getting wisdom. It seems to me that's an abandonment of wisdom at some level. 
Yeah. Yeah. Whenever I'm face to face counseling someone through that, and I, I just kind of look them in the eye. Uh, maybe I can't make a black and white case, right or wrong, but I would just compassionately look them in the eye and say, "How? Tell me how this is really going. Are you? Have you both been able to honor God with your body and wait for the vow when you're sharing a bathroom, when you're sharing a bed, when you're changing in the same space? I mean, it's hard enough to wait sexually when you're not living together. So mm-hmm. I haven't mm-hmm. been in that boat, but I have to imagine that the temptation is up about 10 notches. So when people are candid, they, they kind of come to that conclusion that, wow, th- this isn't putting us on a path of holiness and kind of helps us figure out what the next step should be. Yeah. And that same vein. So talk to me as you do in the book about the subject of adultery. In fact, you have a chapter about how you can avoid it and what to do after it if it's taken place. So again, let's start out with, with definition so that everybody listening is on the same page. Biblically, how do we define adultery? Yeah, but being unfaithful, it, especially sexually, is kind of classic adultery, but there's also emotional cases of adultery to the vow that you've made to your spouse. Um, to me, though, the most powerful part of the book in that section are what I call the, the five steps mm-hmm. of the process of adultery. Um, and it doesn't start with, I haven't met anyone that, you know, gets married and says, you know what, I might cheat sometime. <laughs> right. No, it's this, it's this slow road that leads us to a place where we never thought we would be. And, you know, I, w- I want to be really tender saying this, but the place where adultery almost always starts, not always, but almost always, is with deprivation in the marriage. Mm-hmm. Is, I'm not, if I'm not serving my wife really well, loving her like Jesus loved the church, if her emotional tank is empty... I'm making her susceptible to the next guy who comes around who's compassionate and sweet and generous and listens. So one of the best ways we can protect ourselves from the train wreck of an affair, and and it truly is one of the most painful things a person could go through on this planet, is to take Ephesians 5 seriously, to not assume that I can work 50, 60, 70 hours a week and my marriage will be fine, you know, just assuming that's okay. I can invest all this time in sports and and scrolling Instagram and Facebook, and of of course he's going to be okay. Like when we take a vow, uh, I really want us to take that vow seriously, to prioritize that person that God has put into our life, just like Jesus prioritized his church and gave himself up for her, Ephesians chapter 5. So, you know, there's other steps in the process, but maybe for all of us who are in a relationship, that's that's a really good reminder. There, There are a few things that matter in our lives as married people more than our marriage. So let's give that the proper amount of time and attention that we can keep ourselves and our spouses far, far, far from that terrible line of infidelity. Exactly. Let me linger here a little bit on some of those other steps. So the deprivation, I think, is a very, very important point. And I thank you so much for starting with that, because that's where some deep thinking has to take place. But the second is attraction. So um, this is the idea, again, of fleeing, it seems to me, right? Yeah. So let's say I'm, I'm an unhappy husband. Uh, traction is I just so happen to notice someone at work or in my community or a neighbor. Um, there's other people in this world I will be attracted to. No, normally it doesn't bother me too much if I'm happy at home, but if I'm feeling empty, oh, now there's that certain someone that just makes me feel a little something different, which leads to the third step, was it, which is intention, which is I'm intentionally doing something to connect with that person that made me feel that attraction. So I'm going to stop by her office, even though I really don't need to stop by her office and talk. Oh, he's out go getting his mail. So, so I should go check my mail right now. Um, I'm going to do my hair or I'm going to make sure I'm dressed a little bit nicer if I know that that person is going to be at the party. Um, uh, Janet, I, I noticed when I kind of shared these five steps for a lot of couples, it was either 
that's exactly what happened to me before mm-hmm. the affair, mm-hmm. or holy cow, I'm not on step five now, but I'm on step two. Yeah. yeah, things haven't been great at home. And to be honest, there is this guy that just like he's he's kind of at the top of the list of people that I notice and I'm attracted to. So uh, I'm hoping those kind of jump off the page and help people see it's not too late. Um, you might be on step two, but you're not in step three or may- maybe it is step three, but it doesn't have to be step four. So let's ask God to kind of bring us back to square number one where we can work on the deprivation and love and respect each other in a Christian marriage. Mm. Uh I hear the music. If you wouldn't mind, Mike, I think because this is such an important point, you've given us the first couple of steps. Finish that, if you will, in the steps about adultery, because you may be ministering to somebody right now who is somewhere, as you just noted a moment ago, in those steps, and maybe you'll prevent them from getting to step five, which would be marvelous. Then take a couple of moments, if you would, when we come back. When adultery has taken place, how do you restore? You used trust before when we were talking about LGBT T being the trust issue. How does trust get reestablished in that covenant marriage when it's been broken? The book that Mike Novotny has just written is called Taboo, Topics Christians Should Be Talking About But Don't. We'll continue right after this. Mike Novotny is with us. He's written the book, Taboo, Topics Christians Should Be Talking About But Don't. That fits in perfectly with his work as a pastor, an author, and a speaker. And so we were talking about these steps that lead ultimately to a very devastating decision when we talk about adultery. So you talked first about deprivation. Again, I think that's such a brilliant observation on your part. Uh, When there's a sense of feeling deprived of attention or affection, That's step one. Then you talk about attraction. The third step is intention, followed by emotion and connection. Break that down for me, if you would, Mike, please. Yeah, so step number four is emotion. Um, And that's when I open up about something emotional and personal with the person that I'm attracted to. Um, Most often, this is about the own struggles at home. So my marriage isn't going so well. And you start forming this emotional bond and connection, not just with a counselor or a pastor, but with the person that you're kind of attracted to which often leads to step number five, which is so dangerous, is physical connection. Um, maybe not a, a full-blown sexual experience, but it, it's the lightning bolts of, oh, you're going through a tough time, and you know he rubs her back, or they just reach out across the coffee shop table and hold hands. And that often is the lightning bolt that is really difficult to come back from. Um, you know, once we've kind of walked step by step by step, once we cross what some people call the touch line and we've made physical connection, a much greater physical connection is often just around the corner. Mm, Wow. So when that decision is made and it can't be taken back and trust has been broken, how do you build that bridge again, Mike? Yeah, Yeah, two things. And the first one matters immensely more than the, the second. The first thing is that just like we've talked with so many of these taboo issues, that Jesus Christ came into this world 2,000 years ago to die for that, too. Um, he, he looked at the woman caught in the act of adultery the, the very day when she was caught in her sin, and he said, I don't condemn you. Now leave your life of sin. Um, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, he, he talked about the dangers of adultery and sexual immorality and homosexuality, and then he proclaimed the gospel. He said, but this is what some of you were, but you were washed and justified and sanctified by the Spirit of God. So if this is your story and you just feel such guilt and shame that you went down that path, I want you to know you can come back to Jesus. 
confess that sin, and he is so faithful and so just that he will purify you from all unrighteousness, including this. Hmm. What a word of encouragement. Thank you. Please, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, you're welcome. And and then if you'd like to rebuild a relationship, which is absolutely possible, uh, I have a simple equation that's really not simple. Um, It often takes one to two years to really bear good fruit, and it's the equation time times work times work. Hmm. So we're going to need some time. Uh, An affair or an act of infidelity is like getting broadsided by a semi-truck. You're not going to get up and run a 5K the next day. It's going to take some time to heal. And it's going to take work. Um, For the person who cheated, it's going to take a lot of work. Um, There's going to be that season where, you you know, we're going to grill each other on a thousand different questions of why did you do this and where were you and what are you doing on your phone? There's such a complete lack of trust that the person who cheated is going to have to humble themselves in a thousand and six different ways. It's going to be hard work. And, oh man, Janet, I I sweat a little bit in the palms saying this last part, (laughs) but also the person who was cheated on is going to have to work too. Mm -hmm. Not just on the work of forgiveness, but if it is at all true that at the very start of this process was an act of deprivation, that, that your spouse was not feeling respected or loved or connected, we're not blaming anyone for the affair itself. It's not an excuse, not for a single second. But it might be an explanation of how things happen that way. And so, man, talk about humbling work when you've been devastated and sinned against to know that God still has some sacred humbling work for you to do too. But I think if we put those together, if we're both willing to do the work, stay humble, follow the leading of the Lord, and put in the time, you know, wait for six months, 12 months, 18 months, even two years, um, man, I can think of people right now who worshipped at my church last Sunday, who a couple years ago, when it when it first came to light, you never you never thought they were going to make it. And here they are smiling and laughing with their kids by their side. doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes you can't rebuild the trust, but I've seen it time and time again that God can do way more than we expect or even yes. imagine. Amen. What a word of encouragement. Thank you for that. I wanted my friends to know, again, there are multiple topics in this book, Taboo, and I just gave you this the headings before, and there are subsets under each one of these headings. So let me just take a couple of questions from you about God's word to the abused and God's word to the abusive. This is, again, a subject that uh, has had a problem, quite honestly. I'll be transparent. In the church, a pastor recognizes a broken arm or a blackened eye, but if it's a narcissistic emotional kind of abuse, then it's the wife's problem of not submitting or she doesn't have the right attitude. So there's been some really messy counsel that's come out of the pastor's study on this so again, it isn't about people, it's about the Lord and his word. You say that God has spoken on both the subject of abuse and the one who is the abuser. What does he say? Oh, God hates abuse so much. It's almost shocking, and I believe it's Psalm 11, verse 5. It says, to the one who is violent, God hates that person with a passion. Mm. Wow. Um, it's hard to find a Bible passage where God doesn't just hate an action. He hates a person, not just a regular amount, but with a passion. Um, Passages like that open my eyes to see that God hates abuse so much, and he is so on the side of those who have been abused and controlled and belittled and oppressed, um, that God in his holiness and righteousness just wants people in that situation to know, and I I bet there's a lot of them listening right now, Mm -hmm. that... Whatever your abuser said, however small he made you feel, 
you know, maybe he or she made you think that God was on their side and not on yours and no one could love you. Mm-hmm. But the, the God of the scriptures is so passionately in the corner of those who are trapped by oppression. And he loves them so deeply. You're not second rate to him. You're not broken. You're not damaged goods. If you have Jesus, you're a beloved, whole, pure, delightful child in the eyes of your Heavenly Father. What an encouraging note to end this conversation on. Mike, thank you so much. I want to underscore to my friends that there are multiple topics in this book. You've gleaned them all together, put them under category heads, and they have fortunately often been categorized as being taboo subjects. And as a result, Sometimes Christians just want to avoid them altogether. You didn't, Mike. You put it together in a book. You created it as a resource book, by the way, so that if you are looking to be able to answer someone who's dealing with one of these issues, you have a biblical basis for that answer as found in Mike's book. Or if you're someone who's looking to find out has been at the receiving end of a bad decision or an abusive decision, or you struggled with pornography, as Mike was talking about earlier, you're going to find out exactly the hope and the grace and the mercy and the love you can find in Jesus Christ. The book again is called Taboo, Topics Christians Should Be Talking About But Don't. You'll find that information on my website. Also a link to Time of Grace. You can learn more about that great ministry. My heartfelt thanks to Mike Novotny and to you, friends. We'll see you next time on In the Market with Janet Parshall.